0: Second Peter chapter 2. Okay, look into verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, And if God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if God also rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then, if God didn't spare and didn't spare and didn't spare, but he rescued righteous lot, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from tribulation, from pressure, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. This morning, rather than a verse-by-verse exposition of these verses, which Lord willing, I want to do in a couple of weeks. This morning, I want to look David at one one little part of this larger passage, a very interesting passage. But we're going to focus on verse seven, especially the reference to righteous lots, and think about how that works. But first, let's. Uh, emphasize the main theme the title for this morning's message on that one verse basically is god's grace and salvation is is amazing i know you've heard the song but if it whatever you're talking about when you're describing grace isn't absolutely amazing if it doesn't blow your categories murray if it's not absolutely undeserved unearned unmerited then whatever you're talking about isn't grace yet we tend, it's so great, we tend to distort it or take it for granted or even deny it. And there's just no basis for that. And you uh, I know, talking to Blanche Friday night, I know she understands the importance of grace, not in just in salvation, but the way that the saved should think and react to everything. Because we all stumble in many ways. So I find this, uh, for most of you, this will be review and it's always important to review it. Uh, but this can be a world changer, even for a lot of born again Christians to understand just how amazing God's grace is. And we don't even have the capacity to begin to really, but we can always expand our capacities. That's what the goal is this morning by God's grace, that we will better ex- appreciate and express his grace. Let me remind you that uh, during the second hour today, we'll do the Lord's Supper. So be prepared for that. But let's uh, pray for teachability to this Topical, not an expositional message, although there'd be a lot of scripture in it. So Dennis, I know you want the scripture. We'll get, we'll get scripture. Uh, but let's pray for our peace officers. And yeah, the, the, the sailor there in the bottom left corner, that's my nephew Josh. And, uh, it seems odd that my mom would pass at 6.30 on a Saturday morning and we wouldn't have a funeral until the next Sunday. But uh, the major reason for that is because he has to, Get paperwork so he can be in Beaumont, Texas. And the fastest he can get there is next Saturday, Saturday night. So we're going to do the funeral next Sunday, Lord willing. So let's pray for our military, our peace officers, and our firefighters, even as we're praying for teachability, for some mind-blowing truth, boy. And uh, Doug, you're a guy who understands grace. Would you pray for us in that direction today? Thanks, Doug. Doug is also a a veteran of the Navy. He was a sailor, and we thank you for your service there. Um, To warm up your capacity for abstract thought, this is an oldie, but a goldie. I I like it. Uh, Let's do it in an an unelaborate way. But there are three great religious truths that all TBFers should know. The first great religious truth is Jews do not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. The second great religious truth is Protestants do not recognize the Pope as God's apostolic representative. And the third great religious truth is Baptists do not recognize one another in liquor stores. <laughs> Those are the three great religious truths. Uh, the message of Second Peter overall is that a Christ-centered hope and that goes past your funeral, goes past the death of your loved ones, should motivate believers now This isn't uh, just pie in the sky. To embrace a lifestyle of true holiness and wholeness, integrating everything around the um, lordship of Christ, and to avoid the heresies. they are always going to be out there excuses to believe the wrong things, morally and doctrinally, of false teachers. And if you break down the structure of the book, it's a short book, three chapters, just talks about three things under that umbrella of growing in grace and knowledge. It talks about, Holiness, heresy, and hope. I like to think of it as a three-story building with an arch over it. And to reinforce that uh, major content and structure, we have these awesome aids from Anthony Foreman. And uh, you know, I've been watching people hold these things up for a couple, several weeks now. And you know, we we tried Ron last week in the middle with the heresy, and you know, he did a pretty good job. But nobody does it as well as my man Henry. Henry Ward. So Henry, I want you in the middle. But let's pretend like they haven't seen this before. So just kind of grab that right there. And you know what? I think we ought to put James, the Mitchells, to work here. So, uh, let's go with, uh, no, no, not, not you. I want your boys. I want the best part of your family. Let's get, let's get the two boys up here. You're, you're a paid professional coachman. Okay. Ethan and uh, Jack. Yeah. James has already worked. He's worked hard getting that. And Jack, you go over there, buddy. Ethan, you're my man here. Just hold that backwards so they can't see it quite yet. And yeah, there's what I don't want them to see. But after you turn it around, I'm going to have you later put this on top of it just to make a point. So it's going to be right behind you, Jack. Okay, so let's look at the uh, the screen again here. We're saying that uh, we've got three chapters. We've got three basic uh emphases here. The first one is holiness. What do you think about holiness? The church lady, she's mad at everybody all the time. She's obsessed with the fear that someone, somewhere is having a good time, right? Isn't that what holiness is all about? Does that look like the life of Jesus? looks to me like he's having a whale of a good time, most of it, um, and uh, really enjoys life. You think Jesus enjoyed life? Yeah, absolutely. So holiness, I think, is wholeness of centering your whole life, not just on Sundays and Wednesdays, on the Savior, who is now the Lord of your life. And so Jack turned that around as a visual aid there. Holiness, we've got holes in that board. So that's supposed to make you think of holiness. But the standing that Jack has as a believer and that Lot, you can't find much to say nice about him based on the scripture in Genesis. Jacob, we saw about the God of Jacob, James. What do you know about Jacob? Jacob in the Bible. Pretty cool dude. Would we let him teach Sunday school in this church? He was slimy. He was a liar, a conniver, and yet he's one of the patriarchs, not because of his performance, but because of his position. Not because of his works for God, but because God's works for him. So we can cover up the holes in our lives with true holiness. Now, what's that one? That's a hairy sea. And a heresy just means that's... Uh, We'll call that the presidential slide, you know, it kind of reminds us of (laughs) of President Trump, you know. Uh, During Ronald Reagan's uh, second term, during Ronald Reagan's second term, his hair was turning that tint. And he denied he dyed his hair. And uh, somebody asked his wife, Nancy, the president dyes his hair, right? And she said, no, he's just turned prematurely orange. I think that was a joke. So, yeah, that's a hairy sea. That's a pretty good one. Isn't it? Okay. Now, we're going to talk about hope, which is looking forward to what hasn't happened yet. But look, how do we know what Jesus promised us about the future is going to happen in the future? Because what he promised us about the past has really happened. I mean, he really did come, live a perfect life, died for our sins as our substitute, rose again as he predicted. And when somebody like that makes predictions about the future, you can pretty much bank on them, Right. So turn those, you're okay, Jack, move that. Turn them around again, let's see if everybody knows what the, turn your slides around there, guys, or your your posters. And let's take this out of the way. Okay, I've got three chapters and three emphases. What's the first one? Yeah, turn it around. But even though uh, we are supposed to be holy, we don't have holes in our Christian lives, do we? In fact, we have a perfect righteous standing on our first day and even on our worst day. That's why you can call Lot Righteous. Turn it around, Harry, Henry, whatever your name is. <laughs> I'm going to start calling you Harry now. Yeah, Harry, see? And there's always going to be people making money out of selling books, tapes, or today they're going to have uh, YouTube channels telling you all kinds of things you haven't heard before and spinning Scripture out of context. Don't believe them. I remember one of the first times I talked about the errors of Jehovah's Witnesses uh, on a Wednesday night. That next Saturday, somebody at this church was visited by Jehovah's Witness, and they came in Sunday morning and said, You're wrong, Pastor Brad. Those Jehovah's Witnesses had a Bible just like we do. They were reading from the Bible just like we do. Yeah, but they have a different God, a different Jesus, a different conception of salvation. They don't believe in a physical resurrection. They don't believe that Jesus' work saves you. And they believe only the top 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses of all time actually go to heaven all the other really good Jehovah's Witnesses and a lot of them aren't good enough to make this will live on a revitalizer forever and everybody else gets uh, extinguished. So they're, they're reading Scripture, but uh, they're distorting it. Okay, turn that around. Now, yeah, turn that one around and then, yeah, Ethan, turn yours back around. Turn the hairy sea around. That's just, when that's showing, nobody's looking at anything else. <laughs> and so our hope is built on nothing less yeah, I mean, he's got a track record. He's predicting, I mean, for 2,000 years, we have prophecies about him coming the first time. A lot of people thought it wasn't going to happen. It did happen right on track. We're 2,000 years after his first coming. Everything's right on track. Hey, Wendy, he's right on schedule. He, uh never late. Had to wait from our perspective, but God's never late. So our hope is built on the first coming as we look forward to the glories of the second coming, including a new heaven and earth where righteousness dwells. Man, they did a wonderful job on that, didn't they? Good job. Thank you. There'll be a test later, right? Not really. Okay, so that's the overall book of Second Peter. That's kind of the big picture. Now let's talk about the big picture of this passage that we're not going to look at today. We're going to just look at one little slice of it. But basically, the the passage, and we're going to look at verse 7 briefly. If God didn't spare angels that deserved punishment and in his time punished them, if he didn't spare the ancient world that deserved punishment and they got what they deserved when it was his time, and if Sodom and Gomorrah specifically wasn't spared, I need dot, dot, dots there, lift those up. And on the good side, if God rescued righteous lot, then God knows how to make it all work together in his time. God knows how to rescue the the godly and to keep the unrighteous for day of judgment, the thing that jumps out at you, though, if you read Genesis recently, is how in the world could anybody claim that Lot was righteous? You know, I mean, um, that's kind of hard to contemplate. Uh, and what I say, I think, on your handout is, how in the world could anyone call? Abraham's sketchy nephew, that's the word that my, my kids use, sketchy. Debbie, I'm not sure what you use now for somebody who's not exactly what this should be, but sketchy, is that the word you guys use? Is that, the, is that a good word, Jack? For some, somebody who's kind of a sketchy Christian, they act one way on Wednesday night, next, like something different, basically basketball practice or something like that. That guy's kind of sketchy. Uh, yeah, Lot is the ultimate sketchy, carnal kind of believer. How in the world would anybody single him out as righteous? And what I say is, nobody, that is no human being using religious categories based on human viewpoint, would possibly call this guy, based on his behavior, righteous. But God did, and God still does. And how exactly does that work? So let's think about that. Because according to Scripture, Lot uh, wasn't righteous in his behavior, and, you know, I'm not going to read the grisly details, but I will summarize them for you. According to Scripture in the book of Genesis, based on his behavior, this guy was not righteous. We wouldn't want him teaching Sunday school right now. Uh, Lot was foolish, carnal, and those are the nice things you can say about him. He was immoral. Uh, he's a drunkard. And he committed incest with his daughters. That's where you get the Moabites and the Ammonites. I mean, that's disgusting. That's grisly. And yet Second 2 Peter 2.7 describes him as righteous Lot, and God delivers him and his family from Sodom and Gomorrah because he's categorically different than the Sodomites were. Okay, How is this possible? How can Second Peter, the word of God written, describe this guy as righteous? The way you do that is it's describing him based on his standing not his walk, his position, not his performance. Theologians call this positional truth. In Christ, our sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. I mean, it's hard for me to believe Shauna could ever do anything wrong. I I know myself better. I know I can do things wrong. But I like to say, I mean, if this is the pulpit represents the cross, and according to Dr. Harold Honer. He wasn't really my mentor. I never got that close to him. I would have liked to have gotten close to him, but he's a friendly guy, he was a busy guy, but his Cambridge PhD dissertation, uh, dates the crucifixion as April 3rd, 33 AD. And I just love the numbers of that, even if it's not right. Uh, and that was my mother's birthday, by the way, April 3rd. She was going to turn 90, but she didn't quite make it, but, uh, on earth. But anyway, how many of Shauna sins, and it's hard for me to believe she's ever sinned. But James told me once she made a mistake or something. But not marrying him—that was one of the better things she did, probably. But, and I know I've sinned. So how many of our sins? More importantly, how many of your sins were future when Christ died on the cross on April third, thirty-three A.D. or whenever it happened? The date's not critical. How many do you pay for? Yeah. See, how many? How many times does he have to try to pay for him? Once, you know, and when someone, when the sinner trusts Jesus Christ for salvation, it's kind of like, this is an imperfect illustration, Murray, but it's like God's got this blackboard, like an accountant, and he's slashing down all your personal sins. And when you trust Christ as Savior, the atonement applies to you. The atonement doesn't apply itself. The elect are born, separated from God. You know that, right? God wipes the blackboard away. So how much debt do you owe God? God. But it's better than that. He doesn't just wipe the blackboard away as far as you're standing. He puts plus R on the blackboard and he throws the blackboard away. He's not keeping score anymore because all the sins Christ died for are forgiven, even the ones you haven't committed yet, which some people won't preach that to you because they think, oh my goodness, I can go, you know, look at the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue now, you know. Uh, Yeah, you can. And you can do a lot of things that are stupid and sinful and lazy, you know. You can just... Quit your job and wait for the checks to roll in. But, uh, yeah, all your sins are forgiven, plus the righteousness of Christ is imputed to your account. Bible doesn't say that. We're going to show you where the Bible says that multiple times. Uh, well, maybe the New Testament misunderstood the Old Testament. Abraham believed in it. His faith was reckoned to him as, yeah, driving, uh, to, uh, to Beaumont, Texas, Port Arthur, Texas, where my mother was in the hospital, um, a week ago Friday, we uh, we have Sirius radio now in Debbie's vehicle. And she didn't let me drive it unless we're going cross-country. So, But the cool thing about that is, you know, if you're going cross-country, you don't lose the station. And we were listening to Catholic radio because I love to listen to uh, Call to Communion because for an hour a guy takes questions and tells you why you need to be a Catholic. And you know what? I'm still not a Catholic, and there are reasons. But, uh, but uh, anyway, this guy, David Andrews, I think is his name. But he assured somebody who called. Well, the Protestants say that when we trust Christ, we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account. But Catholics don't say that, do they? He said, "No, we don't." And the Bible nowhere teaches that. And Debbie, who was kind of having napping, said, "Did he say that?" (laughs) Yeah, he said that. Yeah, on radio. So uh, let's think about that. How can you call a foolish, carnal? grossly, horrifically immoral person, and I don't commend anything he did. I'm not promoting it. Like Lot. How can, can you call him righteous Lot and when you look at the big picture? Um and you might say, well, you know, he did all that bad stuff before this. No, he he does the other after it. You know, he does the really bad stuff after. Uh how can you call him righteous? When you're talking not about his performance, but his position, his spiritual position, not about his his uh uh, his walk, but his standing. And the key is how this wonderful truth of justification by faith works. How can Jack uh, Mitchell have a perfect righteous standing before God by being a really, really good football player, basketball player, youth group member, wonderful son, wonderful American citizen. He actually knows the American, he knows the national anthem by heart, you know. A lot of people don't. But you know what, as, as wonderful of a guy as he is, his standing is based on the work of Christ imputed to him, not anything Jack has done, can do, will do, or stop doing, right? Um, let's think about this. Um, let's look at some scripture. Look at Philippians 3. And I've got what I want you to see on the, the handout. If you want to look there, I'm not taking a Bible out of your hand. Feel free to look it up. Uh, this is the New American Standard Bible uh, as far as translation is concerned. Uh if I have something in parentheses a few places, I'm putting a little addition there just as a commentary. But uh in Philippians 3, Paul talks about his conversion, where rather than trying to earn his salvation by being a really, really good Jew, he realized that none of that could work, and he had to have a righteousness given to him that he couldn't actually crank out on his own. And he says, bottom line of a longer testimony statement in Philippians 3, The Apostle Paul says, but what things were gained to me before Acts 9, before his conversion on the road to Damascus, all the good stuff I was doing in Judaism and working for the Judaistic uh, institutional religion, all those things I thought were going to make me better than Gentiles and most other Jews so I could be earn, earn my way to heaven, these I've counted as loss for Christ. And also, I count all things, any and everything he might be able to do to try to earn salvation, that's worthless, it's loss for the excellence of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, including his pension, because he lost his pension working for the Jewish bureaucracy when he became a Christian. And count them but rubbish. That's the Greek word scubia. Hold your nose when you look that up in the lexicon. It's referring to manure. It's a pretty harsh term. He counts all the stuff he could have added up and, and all the good stuff he was trying to do to try to earn salvation. He counts that as manure compared to gaining Christ and being found in Him, not having my own righteousness based on my performance or all the good things I do, like going to synagogue probably every day, not just Sabbath, which is from the law, God's standards in the Old Testament, but that which is through faith in Christ, having a standing in Christ, being found in Him through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. That part that says, and be found in Him. Uh, Paul in other place, places uses the little prepositional phrase, Dennis, in Christ. Look at one example. Look at Romans 8.1. He uses it dozens and dozens of times, and we, we're so used to it, we don't even hardly notice it. But in Christ doesn't just mean you believed in Christ. It means your position legally before God as He sees you in Christ. It's kind of like, if these are your sins, you're in Christ, and he sees Christ. He doesn't see your sins. Plus, he's put the righteousness of Christ in your account, too. It's it's an amazing thing. But look at Romans 8.1, and just notice the use of this phrase, not in him, but in Christ, or in Christ Jesus here. Therefore, after talking about justification and sanctification in Romans 3.21 through uh, this point, through chapter 7, it goes all the way through the end of chapter 8, Therefore, in light of all that good stuff, we're saved by grace. We have a righteous standing. We're supposed to reflect that, but sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those, not just for apostles, not just him, but for those, everyone, despite color, creed, and culture, and generation, and denomination, for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do you get in Christ Jesus? Go back to Philippians 3. just told you rather than trying to obey the law. And if any rules could save you, it'd be the the standards God gave Moses for his Old Testament people to keep. He said, I'm counting all that as, as scubia. I'm counting that as manure over being found in Christ, not having my own righteousness. Don't call me righteous because I was a righteous Jew. That doesn't count. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God, by faith it's kind of like as far as East is from the west so far he's removed our sins or transgressions from us that's the way God sees us in our legal standing now let's go to Romans 3 love Romans 3 man you've got to love it and again what I want to emphasize is on the sheet so I won't go five hours here but feel free to look it up on your phone or look it up in your Bible I, 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 there's no nothing faky or funny here I'm not changing the wording around. David, Doctor David Andrews, you know somebody give him a shout out there. Called a communion by the works of the law. And if any works could save you, Connor, if any list of rules and dun- do's and don'ts could save you, you know which ones could. The law of Moses that God gave to Moses for the people in the Old Testament. If any, li- li- your mom can give you a list of rules. Hey, I can give you a list of rules. Number one is tell that train not to come by when I'm preaching. <laughs> but and it might be a good list. But you can't top the list God gave, and according to the Pharisees, there were 613 do's and don'ts in that list, not just Ten Commandments. Of course, they were picky about their rules, right? But Paul says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Nobody can be called righteous in God's sight. Yeah, Paul was much more righteous than your average zealot, who killed Romans for a living, or your average... Uh, uh, what do you want to call them? Adulterer, or thief, or murderer, or something like that? Sure. Comparatively speaking, some people are much better than others. But it's kind of like if we all had baseballs and we're all on the. Uh, and by the way, the blessing about not springing forward is you didn't lose an hour of sleep last night. You know the bad part about not springing forward. As soon as you leave today, you've lost an hour of your afternoon. <laughs> There's no such thing as a free lunch. I'm sorry. But we're all out here with baseballs, you know. And I could get my I, I got a compass now, next to how long I'm preaching I've got a compass so I can know which way is north all the time it's that way. But I could say, okay, let's throw our baseball jack and everybody's got a baseball. Let's throw and hit the north pole. Throw it as far as you can. Hit the north pole. Anybody would anybody hit the north pole from the parking lot? Now would we all throw it the same distance? Somebody like Clay has got a good arm. he probably throw a lot further than my than my old raggedy arm, you know. He might throw it, I don't know, 25 yards further than mine, right? 75 feet further than mine. That, comparatively speaking, if I only throw mine 10 feet, that's a whole lot longer, right? But he's still 1,000 miles away, thousands of miles away. So the idea that, well, we're not, a lot of people are better than other people. You're right if you're going to compare that way, but God doesn't work that way. By the words of the law, no flesh shall be justified in God's sight. To be justified means to be declared righteous like Lot was, like Jacob was. And more importantly, like Brad was. (laughs) Because by the works of the law, because nobody keeps the law perfectly using an absolute scale, and that's how God grades, comes the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed perfectly consistent with everything in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And he's talking about the righteousness of God, which you get, you can access through faith in Jesus Christ, and all who believe get it. No matter how bad they are, how good they were, how religious they were, how irreligious they were, what color, country, and culture, generation, or denomination. doesn't matter. There is no difference because all of us fall thousands of miles short of the North Pole. But those who believe are justified, given a righteous standing that's good on your first day and your worst day as a Christian on earth. Being justified freely. It means you don't earn it. You don't pay for it. That's what grace is. By His grace through the redemption, the redemptive work, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Uh, Goes on, whom God set forward and publicly made a propitiation, a satisfaction of righteous wrath by sacrifice, by his blood, everything involved in his bloody sacrificial atoning death, access through faith to demonstrate God's righteousness because he didn't wipe out the world after the first person sinned or after a certain amount of sins he put up with it. And the Old Testament folks that were saved by faith in the promised Messiah were saved on credit because the payment had not been made yet, right? And God doesn't wipe out the world prior to that. I know about Noah in the flood, but uh, humanity survives that, right? Uh, and he does all that to demonstrate his righteousness so that without compromising his character, God might be just. And be able to call people like righteous Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Brad McCoy and Zane Britton righteous, without compromising his character. He might be just and the justifier, being able to declare sinners righteous who trust in Christ, those who believe in Jesus. We're there in his boasting for those who are the recipients of that. There's no reason to be a church lady because you got nothing to brag about. Who, who do Christians have to brag about for salvation for sanctification? Jesus Christ, right? So to the extent of uh, we kind of get impressed with how righteous we are, all the sacrifices we're making, we're focusing on the wrong thing. And that will motivate some people until people forget to pat them on the head and then they kind of disappear. And that's not that's not the way we're motivated. We're motivated by something much more profound than that. Okay, next page. Romans 4. For Abraham, back in Genesis fifteen six, was justified before God, declared righteous by God in his standing. By works, he could brag about that. But not before God. There's actually two ways people can be justified. By faith or by works. By vertical before God, by faith, horizontal by works at the fruit of our salvation. That's what James is going to talk about in a minute. If Abraham had been justified before God by works, he could brag about himself to God. And that's blasphemy. But what does Scripture say? And we get the quote from Genesis 15, 6 here in Romans 4. Abraham believed and it, his faith was reckoned as righteousness. Just like, Lot, and, and when and the the Hebrew grammar of Genesis fifteen six means then or and no later than this. In fact, he probably came to faith earlier than that, saving faith. But Lot's there with him. I'm sure Lot came to faith just before, right after Abraham did, as far as his positions concerned. And we're talking about later uh, in, when he's in psalm Gomorrah. And people say, well, at least he went out of town and didn't look back. If you read the text carefully, many people don't read the text that carefully. Yeah, he leaves, but the angel has to grab him by the hand and basically pull him out. He doesn't look back, but he really really has a big chunk of his heart back in Sodom and Gomorrah. He didn't go the whole eight yards with him. But uh, we kind of clean him up a little bit to try to theologically explain this statement. And this is a radical grace statement about Lot. that You'd call him righteous, right? Uh, yeah, but watch this. And I love verse 5 of Romans 4. But to the one who doesn't work, who doesn't do anything meritorious before, during, or after to get it or to keep it, but believes, believe faith is an active, uh, receptive trust in the sufficiency of Christ. It's not a meritorious work, but it is a rational act. The one who believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. Who's the one who justifies the ungodly? Kylene, who do you think? That'd be Muhammad? Does Muhammad justify the ungodly? Buddha? Jesus Christ because of who he is and what he did. Right, Joe? He's the only one who can do that. That person's faith, that ungodly person who believes faith, is treated as righteousness. I always think about the thief on the cross. You guys know enough that Romans didn't crucify thieves, Debbie. They only crucified people who were dangerous to Rome, who typically had killed several Roman soldiers or Jewish civilians who worked like Matthew for the dreaded Romans and toward the end of his life, the guy says to Jesus, he didn't even say, Lord. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He said, big deal. Jesus apparently thought that was a real big deal. That's saving faith. Lord, I'm a sinner. I deserve to die and go to hell. I can't fix it. You can, and I want you to. That's what saving faith is, as many as received him. What does Jesus say to the guy? Yeah, I wish you would talked to me last week, because we could have sat in the synagogue we could have given you a book to read. We could have had several interviews. We could have checked you out. What does Jesus say to the guy? Today, you will be with me. How much, how much fruit did this guy bear? He's got nothing to offer. Uh, I'm not sure he gets a lot of fruitage in the, in the next 15 minutes before he drops dead. Do you? He, salvation had to be by grace. If your understanding of salvation can't has to explain away the terror. And he's not a thief. He's a murderer. He'd broken all ten commandments multiple times. Trust me. And you know, I've said that many times. I'm going to bump into heaven and heaven he's going to say, I never broke one of them. Okay? You know, one of the 613 or one of the 10. But that's pretty strong there. Second Corinthians 5.21. He, God the Father, author of the plan, made Him, Jesus Christ, the God, man, Savior, active agent of salvation. He actually makes the atoning sacrifice who knew no sin. He knew about it. He saw it. He committed no sin. He didn't know it like Adam knew his wife. Really, to get to know your wife, you know, you really have a deep, intimate connection there. Uh, he had no experience of committing sin. But Jesus becomes a sin offering for us. Somebody called called the communion on the Roman Catholic station. There he is, Jesus doing substitutionary atoning sacrifice. He also said Jesus does didn't do a substitutionary atoning sacrifice. The reformers made that up. Martin Luther invented that. Well, you know, Martin Luther read 2 Corinthians and he exegeted Romans. That's where he got all that stuff. But anyway. Uh, but watch. Jesus became a sin offering on our behalf so that we, you know, the ungodly person that believes, including the terrorist on the cross. Would become the righteousness of God in Him. What do you know about in Him? That's His position, Ethan. That's the, every believer's position legally before the judge of heaven is perfectly righteous if you dare to trust Him for it. Is, is that amazing? And we're gonna water this thing down and add a bunch of prerequisites? It's weird, man. But you got a rock band and a, a good looking guy that doesn't tuck his shirt in and everybody loves it, you know. They don't seem to notice that we're kind of missing the whole thing. Okay, now here's a big problem with all that. Doesn't the Apostle Paul get contradicted by the book of James? And here's, in a nutshell, what you need to know. We could spend a lot of time on this, but we won't. Uh, we've done it before, we'll do it again. Uh, Paul says in the passages, we looked at that people are justified, given a righteous standing before God, by faith alone, apart from any works. Your position is apart from your performance. But James says that people are not justified by faith only, but by works, and he gives an example of Abraham offering up Isaac as a sacrifice as being justified by works. So they seem to contradict, but which one's correct? Both of them are correct? You've been reading ahead, haven't you? You've been reading that book again, haven't you? Good good job, Lynn. Yeah, there's actually two different kinds of justification. And James is focusing on what I would call horizontal justification demonstrating the reality of our faith by righteous works before people, because that's all they can see. But God doesn't just see our works. What does he see? All that good justification before human beings for it to be valid and spiritually vital comes as an effect of vertical justification, being declared righteous, uh, saved, sealed, and delivered through faith in Christ. So there are actually two different kinds. And the cool thing is, we know that Paul and James are on the same page on this, Because among many other things, in Acts 15, where the apostles get together to make sure that they're right about telling Gentiles, you don't have to become a Jew before you can believe in a Jewish Messiah and be saved. You can just be saved as a Greco-pagan if you'll trust Jesus Christ, right? And in the Acts 15 uh, Jerusalem Council account there, uh, Stephanie, you've got the James that writes the book of James, and Peter, James, and John, and Paul, all in the same room, and they all sign off on that. So when they're talking about vertical justification, of course it's by faith alone in Christ alone. But James is talking, he's a very pragmatic, practical guy. James is very much Proverbs and New Testament clothing, isn't it? Very pragmatic. How's this working out? Can people tell the difference? If you're arrested for being a Christian, could there be enough evidence to convict you? So let's say there are two kinds, two types of justification. One word, Use two different ways. Justification type one, how God sees us, our righteous standing before God. That's what Paul emphasizes in his epistles. Justification type two, how other people with their eyeballs, believers and unbelievers, see our actual righteous walk before people, right? The effects of our salvation. So that's called the first one, which Paul talks about, vertical justification, our connection with God, faith alone in Christ alone. What James is emphasizing, that's great. But how's that affecting people that are be warm to be filled? If you look at a poor guy, we could do that in Puebla. We could go to uh we could go to uh Kanoa to share the gospel. But some guy starving to death and saying, I know you're starving to death, but you need to listen to this about Jesus. You know, I think you meet the immediate crisis physical need, right? Or if they're bleeding to death, you bandage them up and then you tell them about Jesus. Which is more important? The eternal, for sure but which is urgent, right? If you let him bleed to death, and some of you guys, it takes you like 35 minutes to explain the gospel to people. He's, he's, he's a goner, you know? And, and God doesn't let stuff like that happen. Trust me, he's doing stuff to make sure it all works out. It doesn't really depend on us. Yeah. So, you know, here's my diagram that I like. Uh, Paul's talking about the faith part as far as vertical connection with God. James is talking about the faith working out in performance that people can see so they can tell the difference and be impacted by it. God doesn't need to see that. He's already seen your heart. Uh, I like Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I found this cartoon. You know, for by grace, unmerited favor, you have been saved through faith as far as your vertical connection with God. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one could boast. And you've got the guy on the left who wants to work for salvation and the other guy receiving the free ticket, you know, that's the difference. But here's here's the cool thing. And, and I've talked to a lot of people. I've talked to people, you know, ministers about this, and, and all kinds of people. Some people a lot of training; they know the Greek and Hebrew. And some people just read it for the first time. They bump into James and it blows their categories. I remember in dental school getting a call from a lady in our Sunday school class, and I'm just I'm just a dental student bumping into James too, and she's freaking out, you know. So people wonder. But I never hear anybody saying, well, "How do you know that, Brad?" I mean, because because somebody else has written a book that says they're all saying the same thing, and faith means you got to work or something. Faith is works so or committing to work. Whereas Paul says, "But you're the one who does not work, but believes." You know, so that seems to. But what do you do? The big big deal is what example, Mike, does Paul use in Abraham's life to talk about vertical justification, and where do you find it in Genesis? Jesus 15.6. He's 75 years old. He's a young man. I turned 65 on Friday. Uh, unless I drive after, I probably drive part of the way after we teach religion to Thursday night and then drive the rest of the way uh, on Friday. It'll be my birthday driving down for my mother's funeral. So it's funny how weird stuff happens on my birthday and it's not always good. You know, But uh, but anyway. Yeah. So that's what, that's the example Paul uses every time. For justification by faith. Vertical justification. What example does James use? Well, you, And what you'll hear is, they both use Abraham as an example, so boom, they must be saying the same thing, so you got to interpret Paul away, because James really is telling what he really means, to salvation is really by works. No, uh-uh. There's two kinds of justification And Sue, so The example James uses, isn't Abraham, when he's a young 75, we go 20 or 30 years later, in Genesis 22, and he's, he gets to the point where if God says, I want you to offer X up on the offering, anything, he's just flat going to do it. Let me tell you, I don't think Abraham could possibly conceive of even doing what he does in offering up his son in Genesis 22. Back in Genesis 15, he could he didn't have that capacity as a young believer. There's no way. And I I, I don't think I could do that now. And I've been a professional Christian now. Twenty-nine and a half years here, six and a half in Shreveport. That's a long time to be a professional Christian. I'm not. I don't think I could do that. You, know, you always say if God calls you to you, He'd enable you to. And I'm going to assume that. But I, 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 I don't think I, I don't think I'm where Abraham was there. But that is kind of the ultimate example of somebody vindicating the reality of their faith when they're willing to do that. And of course, the intent was never to actually kill the kid. It was just to show. The world, God, and this wasn't God testing him because God didn't know. You know, God kind of goes to second person, third person, Jesus, Holy Spirit. Hey, I wonder if he would actually do that. Let's go see, okay? He, They know. They know he can do it. I'm not sure he knew he could do it, but he does it. So have you ever heard anybody say that when they compare Paul with James and say, by the way, they're referring to two different guys, same guy, 25 years later, who's a totally different guy? Have you seen that? Does that help? Does that make sense? Say yes. I only spent about a long time figuring that out myself. Yeah, it was, you're talking about James' example, is 25 years later, you know? Now, Lot could be described as righteous using Paul's categories, and that's true. But you don't have Lot being held up by James or anybody in the Bible as a good example of performance because he was a slime ball, okay? I hate to use technical theological terms here, but uh, I will. Okay, let's wind her down. God's grace is amazing. And if whatever you're talking about ain't absolutely amazing, it doesn't blow your categories, uh, it ain't grace yet. It's not good enough yet. It's not just a good deal. You're not giving out God anything to be saved. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need anything you've got. It's your privilege to give Him your entire life back as an effect of regeneration. It has nothing to do with receiving justification at all. If... Righteousness, you know, comes by being good. Then Abraham would have something to brag about with God. Hey, you're lucky I'm up here, bud. I was a really good Christian, really good Old Testament believer. God's absolute grace in God's grace is absolutely amazing. I'm getting excited. Plus, uh, we've gone forty minutes, and I'm trying to hard to stay within the forty-five minute uh, commitment to you because I know it's hard to think that hard on Sunday mornings. Uh, it's for me. Uh, if it isn't absolutely amazing and if it doesn't blow your categories and you're not talking about grace yet in other words grace in the salvation of sinners giving them a righteous standing in the life of abraham isaac jacob a lot and you and me is amazing undeserved unmerited and uh, you're not going to find it in any of the world religions for sure I used a a bad example that I didn't take the time to cover on the first page of your notes. The whole Mormon edifice is based on the premise that as man is, God once was. And he's not the God who's transcended over the universe. He's the God over our planet. His name's Elohim, according to Mormon theology. As man is, God once was. God in the Bible is just a glorified human being because he was a good proto-Mormon on another planet. As man is, God once was, as God is man, meaning Mormon males, may become. Lorenzo Snow, who knew both Brigham Young and Joseph Smith and were sanctioned by him, said that. And they also say things like, and when you talk to Mormon missionaries, and this will happen some of you, you go, our pastor said we're justified by grace, and the Mormons say, we believe the same thing. Well, there Brad's wrong about those cults again. Yeah. Yeah, they believe in grace. We are saved by grace after all we can do. I asked uh, a Jehovah's Witness once verbatim. I remember this very distinctly. I have fading memories of the 64, almost 65-year-old guy, but I've got this imbelled, just built in my brain. Murray, I'm not making this up. I, they're trying to teach whatever's in the Watchtower, their magazine that week. I said, hold it a second. What must I do to be saved? That's Acts 16.30. The answer was, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. What must I do to be saved? And the guy said, you must obey the gospel. Now that sounds pretty good, but I'm a theologian. So I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, you've got to obey, he said, you've got to obey all the commands. All, and I, I just I said I memorized it. He said had two things. You've got to obey, obey all the commands and, and laws of the Bible. That's, that's the gospel. Is that the gospel? Obey all the laws and the commands of the Bible? What does Romans 3.2 say? By the works of the law, nobody's going to be justified before God. You can impress a lot of people by obeying the law, by trying to. But, yeah. So, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, or Mormonism is a are big structural religions that totally blow all this stuff away. But what's even sadder is when evangelicals, including in pulpits, water it down or distort it, or just don't teach it because they're afraid if you realize you've got a perfect righteous standing, you can't mess up you're going to go do something nasty and naughty tomorrow. Well, you'll probably do something nasty and naughty tomorrow anyway. You know, walk in the Spirit and won't carry out the desires of the flesh. That's the only verse you need, Stephanie, by the way, for that whole premise. He, he's, he didn't have to say that. The Scripture didn't have to say, walk in the Spirit and won't carry out the desires of the flesh. If the whole premise of that teaching we're talking about were true, you wouldn't have to have any commands in the New Testament because it would just be automatic pilot kind of thing. I tend to see Jesus and the thief on the cross who's not a thief it's the number one example of how absolutely amazing this is. And it really ex- explains the terms of the dynamics of saving faith, I think. But righteous Lot is right up there with it. So you see righteous Lot, are you kidding me? How could anybody call him righteous? Nobody could, using human viewpoint religious categories. But God is not limited by that, which is a good thing. Otherwise, none of us would be savable, much less saved, right? Now, here's the thing, and I will finish this time. Since we're saved by grace... Does it make any sense to try to motivate Christians by guilt? It works. Okay? If I could convince you, you, if you die and go to hell, you will die and go to hell this week if you don't come to prayer meeting Wednesday night. How many of you would be at prayer meeting? If you actually believe that, you'd cancel your schedule. You'd be here. And if I said, you have to be on time, (laughs) that would just ruin the dynamics of this church. But if you really believe that, I mean, I really believe that I would be here. I'm going to be here anyway. I, mean, I get paid to show up, you know, but the rest of you are coming for nothing. So, uh, yeah, it can work, and that's an extreme example. Of course it works, you know, but is that the way we ought to operate? I mean, I think you teach the truth and dare to believe that God understands that truth will transform, even though it can be abused. Of course it can be abused, right? Uh, do teenagers ever abuse their parents' love? I think every teenager in history probably has at some point, yeah. But does that mean, well, say you messed up. You shouldn't have let them know you really loved them and that nothing they could do would break that basic bond you've got with them. You shouldn't have let them know that. Is that going to make them psychologically healthy if they're wondering about that? Of course not. It's, It's just crazy. So I think the normal response to the greatness of the grace of God is what Romans 12 says, you know, Based on the mercies, based on the incredible and believable grace of God, live your lives a living sacrifice, which is not your spiritual, that's pneumaticos. it's logikos in the Greek. You're logical. It's only logical, Marie, for you to live for the one who died for you, and not just at Cameron University where I'm watching you, and not around here where your mom's watching you, but I mean when you go to Stillwater, that den of iniquity known as OSU. And I'm going to be watching you even up there. i got people, i got eyes on the ground up there. <laughs> He's going to be the world's greatest engineer soon, after they teach him how to be a world-class engineer at uh, OSU. Yeah, you know, I just felt led, uh, even though I really prefer, once we start a book, just plow through it passage by passage. That jumped at me me this week, even before I got the bad news, and I said, we're just going going to pound away at that. You need to hear that, right? Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are in awe of your amazing grace, and we can't begin to appreciate it properly. But just let us, just like uh, leaning into a, a nice, cool swimming pool in the uh, hottest day of August, let us just just immerse ourselves in your grace, not as a license to sin or to go have speed, but as the perfect motivation for us to give everything we've got back to you gladly without ever noticing how great we are because we're just so amazed your greatness and your grace. And we uh, pray, Father, if we go to the Lord's Supper after a break here, that you'd help us to be re-centered on the Lordship of Christ as we live between the first and uh, the second coming of Christ. Just renew our hope and our commitment and our closeness to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.